Evening, everybody. I love being introduced as a man who thinks differently. <laughs> uh, right, okay. So, um, I have a cold. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. I have a cold. I'm not feeling very well. As everyone knows, when a man gets a cold, it's always much worse than it is when a woman gets a cold. It affects us men far more significantly than it does you women, so you need to be absolutely sympathetic. And the other thing that happens when a man gets a cold is his brain turns to mush. So if I end up reading from my notes tonight, it's because I have not got a clue what I did when I was preparing this, and I'm just trying to make some sense of it to you, and that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Um, someone did uh, overhear my wife saying, have you got a permanent cold then, darling? So... And she's uh, absolutely convinced my brain has been mush since before she married me. I was really tempted to say, yeah, that's why I married you. But... Oh. <laughs> it's all right, I'll get it in the neck when she listens to it back, so it's okay. So a talent, what's a talent then? This is some fabulous pictures of talented people. Um, can you... Everybody see who everybody is up there? Go on, call out to me. Just, uh, I'll, I'll let you off the racing cars because he's not very clear. But, uh, so we've got Mr. Clapton. Yeah. Uh, if anybody uh, remembers back that far, the graffiti all around London in the old days was Clapton is God. Yeah. So uh, in the middle there we've got Mr. Beckham, the man most famous for selling aftershave and things like that, yeah. And on the, uh, on the side, looking every bit as lovely as he always does in photographs. Lionel Blair, yeah. Yeah, there we go. And down on the bottom there, Susan Boyle, yeah, from one of her early auditions on The X Factor. In the middle, name your favourite racing driver or whatever. Some people consider it to be really talented in their cars and sports talent. Jessica Ennis, Jessica Ennis, heptathlon gold medalist. Brilliant, isn't it? So, um, so the dictionary definition of a talent is a natural aptitude or skill, i.e. he possesses more talent than any other player. And the synonyms for that are flair, an aptitude, a facility, a gift, a knack, a technique, a touch, a bent ability, expertise, capacity, power, or faculty. So that's what a talent is. But of course, the parallel between an English talent and a biblical talent uh, only happens by accident of our use of the same word to mean both things. Yeah? The way that we translate things. Because a talent in the Bible had nothing to do with the gifts, skills, abilities, flair, or natural aptitude that anybody had. In the Bible... A talent has one meaning, and it's a measure of weight. How much does a thing weigh? It weighs a talent. And it usually refers to large amounts of things like silver and gold. So a talent of silver or a talent of gold was a unit if you were rich enough. So, for example, in Exodus 28, when they're building the tabernacle of Moses in the first place, 
we are told that the weight of all the gold that was used in the construction of the tabernacle of Moses and the overlaying of the Ark of the Covenant and all that kind of thing, it weighed 29 talents. 29 talents. So when Jesus is talking talents to his hearers, that's what they're thinking of. Not the things that we think about when we talk about talent. So it makes a difference to the way that we hear what it is that Jesus is saying to us. So let's think for a minute. I don't know whether you've heard some of these, but I was thinking of of all of the different ways I've heard this parable talked about in the past. And now I'm going to do the left field MIG thing with it, if that's okay. So, uh, number one was the venture capitalist's version. So, I know people who like making money in the city. In fact, I have a good friend who, before his retirement, was on um, uh, a six-figure, high six-figure salary in in London um, and made large amounts of money for people um, throughout most of his life. Uh, and the venture capitalists love the idea that this, in this parable, Jesus is justifying their re- reason for existence, yeah? That it's okay to have money and to make money, and especially if you can give it back into the kingdom of God to do some good with it. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's, and, and um, you know, make more money. Build it up, invest it wisely. Jesus is talking about doing exactly what it says on the surface in this. And the guy that just takes his cash and stuffs it under the mattress or whatever is the one that will get a beating from Jesus at the end of the day for being a lazy good-for-nothing who didn't do anything with what he'd given. So, um, but then there's the social activist, social justice activist who actually interprets this Bible from the opposite way around. I don't know whether you've ever heard this one done, but actually the hero of the story in the social justice version of this is the one-talent man at the end. Yeah. Because he refused to play by the same venture capitalist rules that everybody else was playing with, because the only way to make money in the Old Testament, that amount of money, was to be corrupt and to... Uh, step on the, the, the little man and to make your money unjustly and unwisely at the expense of the poor. So the hero in the uh, social justice story is the guy who refused to do any of that, just stuck it on one side and said, I'm not playing your game, all you greedy money laundering people. Um, that's what we're going to do. So the traditionalist's view then, uh, the fundamentalist view, Traditionalist, fundamentalist view. Uh, Jesus has given you gifts and it's your job to use them for the kingdom. If you use them well and you serve him faithfully in the church, God will reward you. But if you don't do well enough, he'll kick you outside in the cold and you won't get into heaven. The JWs really like this version of this parable. It's all about how much door knocking you can do and how much good that you can do. But the problem with that, of course, is it means that our salvation is all about what we do in this life and how well we do in this life and not about the grace of God. But then there's a Catholic tradition. I don't know whether you've ever heard of this one. And in the uh, one stream of the Catholic tradition, the parables interpreted in a completely different way and they do what the rabbis were known for, for doing in Old Testament ways and they would string various verses and various ideas together to kind of see what God had to say and they come up with this idea about the fact that a talent is a weight. It's a physical weight 
And actually, the word that's used for the glory of God in the Old Testament as well carries that connotation of a weight, the kabod of the law, which is the heavy presence and weight of God's glory. And so it sees this parable as Jesus talking about the weight of the glory of God that has been invested in us in bearers of the divine image and the carriers of God's presence with us. And actually, therefore, it's all about whether or not we, God's presence is, is allowed to really rest on us or not. Effectively, how much anointing have I got, guys? Yeah? And can I do what I do uh, better or worse because of that? So, the evangelical version. It's all about souls and populating the kingdom. Our job is to take the message we've heard and share it with everyone we can. And the more people who respond to the message through us, the more brownie points we score, the bigger our reward when we get to heaven, and the one who's too scared to share the word with anybody and just keeps the truth to himself will lose everything, potentially even in his own salvation. Anybody ever heard that one? So when I was growing up as first a Christian, that, was, that would have probably been the favoured one in the kind of stream that I was going up. You just had to share your faith, you had to share your faith, you had to share your faith. That was what it was all about. If you're too chicken to share your faith, God will disown you as well. So that's... So what, if anything, is the parable trying to teach us? This isn't one of Aesop's fables. Yeah? We all know Aesop's fables. Yeah? Good little trite stories that tell us something about how we should be morally. Yeah? And, and a nice idea. This isn't, this isn't Jesus giving us a little Aesop's fable about how we're meant to behave with something. It's not some moral code, it's an abstract story taken out of context that we can interpret any way we want and still have it true. This is Jesus' teaching that he's given for a particular reason and he's given it here in the middle of his discourse about what's going to happen at the end of the age. And how he's going away, but then he's coming back and even he doesn't know exactly when. And this series of parables that he tells is all about, there's always somebody that goes away for a period of time and then they come back again. And he's talking about himself in that period and the need to maintain faith between the master's leaving and the master's return yeah and how do you do that how do you maintain how do you keep the main thing the main thing when the one who made the main thing the main thing isn't around to keep it the main thing told you my brain is gone yeah so In three situations, Jesus puts before his hearers in this portion of scripture, the slave is given charge of the servants, the ten virgins, and the parable of the talents. There's always someone who's given the privilege and responsibility. There's an authority figure who goes away for an indeterminate time. There's a choice to be made in that waiting period. There are those who choose well and get what it is the master's asked them to do. And there's those that misunderstand the master's heart and behave badly and at the return, there's a judgment and either a well done or a rejection. Yeah, there's a pattern of Jesus' teaching going through all this. So the whole parable is speaking to how we live in a way that pleases the Master between the period of his ascension and his return. Yeah? In case you haven't noticed, that includes us. Because we're still somewhere in that period between the Master's ascension and his return. So, he's speaking directly to us. 
So what's the key to finding out how we're meant to live? So my traditionalist friends that say the key is obvious, the master's Jesus, the servants are ourselves, the talents are the gifts, abilities, wealth and positions he's given us, and on his return he'll assess how well we've done with the various talents he gave us, and if we've done a good job he'll reward us in heaven, and if we don't work hard enough or we squander his resources he'll punish us. Problem with the literal way of interpreting things is that it makes God a really hard taskmaster who expects a good return on his investment. It makes us thoroughly responsible for how hard we work and how much return we produce. And it makes the one who misunderstands the master the object of wrath and punishment. Which doesn't make sense to me in the light of a lot of what else Jesus teaches. Have you noticed, by the way, it's really funny that actually the bit that we love in any of the stories is always the negative bit. It always becomes our focus. So in this one, the bit that we're really interested in is not being like the guy who's thrown outside with a weeping and a wailing and a gnashing of teeth. That's the guy that nobody wants to be. That's the one that we focus on. He's the one that we don't want to be and we don't want anyone else we know to be either. So if you look all through the Bible, if you're not careful, the flood becomes a story about God's wrath and the destruction of the whole world. Rather than the fact that God found a way of saving the little bit that could be saved. Yeah? Which has always been God's heart. How do you save the bit that can be saved? Yeah? Sodom and Gomorrah is all about the one who turned back and became a pillar of salt rather than the God who found a way. If there's any in here that can be saved, I'm going to save them. Yeah? And you remember that whole dialogue that goes on with would the Lord kill everybody, even the righteous, with the, the wicked kind of thing? Um, this is a parable about God pouring out his blessings and wanting people to come and share in the abundant and extravagant joy that he's poured out. That's just So, here's some weighing scales. So I did a little bit of research for you, just to make this nice and human now. So, uh, if this will work right, okay. So one talent weighs about as close as we can get, about 35 kilograms. Yeah? Can you lift 35 kilograms on both arms, Ewan? Probably just about, yeah. Anyone want to come and try and lift Ewan over their head? He's slightly more than, than 70 kilograms, but only slightly, yeah? Um, so a talent weighs 35 kilograms. Now, I checked this week. This is slightly wrong. It's 31,957 pounds something was gold's... Uh, value per kilogram in today's money. So that means one talent's worth £1,120,000 today. And actually its value in the old world in the time that Jesus was talking about will be higher than that because of the, the, the difficulty with actually obtaining that kind of wealth in the first place. So when we think about this, we think about people give it, being given one talent. Poor guy, he only got one talent. It's no wonder he didn't do much with it, really. The whole point of this story is, Jesus is depicting a master who abundantly gives an outrageous amount of wealth into the hands of his servants. It's a colossal exaggeration of anything that could ever be expected to happen. Yeah? And even the guy who gets one talent is a millionaire. Yeah? 
in God's kingdom. So they're abundantly blessed with phenomenal resources and that's always the heart of God. It's the enemy who comes along and goes, oh, you know, God doesn't want you to have the best. It's, it's the Adam and Eve story. That says, it's all yours, God says. It's all yours. And the enemy comes along and goes, no, it's not really, because he's keeping the best bit to himself. Yeah. And it's the way that you see God is really important in this. He's stopping you reaching your full potential, the enemy would always say. In this story, it's the hugely blessed and outrageously trusted guy who listens to that kind of lie, who allows himself to have an entirely wrong view of the character of God, which in turn leads him to letting himself down. And I've realised that was a really long introduction to what I'm talking about. So what's the key to understanding what Jesus is really saying here? It's actually found in the little phrase that Jesus uses at the end of the parable, because this isn't the only time that he uses it. It's the same little phrase that he uses in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, or the lamp on the stand in Luke 8, or the ten miners in Luke 19:26. It's Jesus explanation when he, of why he speaks to people in parables to the one who has more will be given to the one who doesn't have even what he has or thinks he has will be taken away yeah I think that's key to understanding what Jesus is going on about so what is it? it's what Jesus called in his explanation to people the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom what we might call the faith seed. Yeah? It's that word of God that planted in good soil takes root and produces a harvest. And importantly, it's the deposit of heaven in us that produces what we can never produce on our own, by our own efforts or our energies. That's why all of the parables that talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like, there's an element that happens in there that can only happen because God makes it happen. It's the tiny little seed that when it's planted turns into a massive great tree that the birds come and rest in. Or it's a little bit of yeast that's put into the dough that then works its way through the whole dough and produces something else. Or the scattered seed that grows when it finds the right environment. So we can create or withhold an environment for the word of God to grow, or not. It's the thing that produces fruit in us that wouldn't be produced unless God was doing something that we can't make happen by our own actions or intentions. Some of you are looking confused. Which is why this parable isn't telling us that we should take our natural talents and work really hard to develop them to the best of our abilities so we can enjoy a great return on our hard work and not get told off by God for being lazy. It's telling us about an outrageously, extravagantly generous God who's given us something that's of infinitely greater value than all the material wealth or gifts we could ever have. And who wants us to treasure it and let it grow in us until it fills every part of us and then to let it overflow so it affects everything we do and everyone we come into contact with. It's the thing that God does with what he's put inside of us that we can't do. That's what's really 
important. So some might ask, if that's the case, why does the one who did nothing with what he was given get punished? Yeah? But if what I'm saying is true, then he's not being punished so much as he is reaping the consequences of his own wrong attitude to God. He was blessed beyond measure. He's a millionaire. But he'd rather bury it than, yeah, appreciate it. He'd rather not take the risk. He's heard some of the word of truth. He's received a faith seed. He's got some kind of intuitive grasp on something of heaven. But he's totally failed to understand what it is he's got. And he's given the gift and the character and nature of the giver. And he's just buried it. He's assumed that God will demand back anything that's rightfully his. And that nothing he does will benefit him. So why bother? But of course in the upside down kingdom of heaven, everything... God gives, he gives for our benefit and everything we work for benefits us and the more we invest ourselves in service, the greater the reward we gain yeah have you noticed that in the kingdom of heaven you can work really really hard and actually you get blessed by it God gives back to us. This is abundant life. This is life in all its fullness. It goes upside down. What could be seen as hard work and slogging your guts out becomes life. So, somebody asked me, what about the book of James then? Doesn't he talk about the importance of working for God and the things that we do and about working hard to show that we're true disciples? And it's true he does, but a closer reading of what he's talking about is a counter-argument of the balance between Faith and works. So James is talking about, it's not faith versus works, but it's faith expressed in works. Yeah. It's still a faith seed that gives rise to works that do some good. It's what God has placed inside of us that grows up to produce the fruit. Or Paul put it in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Or in Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Yeah. It's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So on the one hand, James is countering the argument going, well, if it's faith from first to last and I'm in God's kingdom, then I don't need to do anything, do I? Because God's already blessed me abundantly and I'm all right. That's fantastic. But he goes, no, you can't do that. Because actually, if it's real faith, if it's true faith, it's going to produce fruit and it's going to produce work because it's going to grow through every part of your being and every bit of you and everyone that you come into contact with and it's going to affect the whole world around you. You can't have faith without it producing good works. You can't have true faith without it producing good works works you can stop it so what I believe that Jesus was telling us here in his parable is this, God our Father has deposited in us the most extraordinary gift of faith that's far beyond the value of even the wildest earthly riches we could ever achieve what we have is worth more than anything. I was reminded again last week um, 
watching some, some stories of children uh, in other countries who have nothing but have faith in Jesus. And they've got absolutely nothing. They're some of the happiest, most generous kids on the face of the planet. They'll give away the last thing that they've got just to bless somebody else with because it, it's kind of, you know, they're full of something that's worth more than all the other stuff that they could have. But this faith seed, this deposit that God's given us, isn't ours to keep. I think Jesus is teaching us that as well. This isn't something we can hang on to and go, that's great, I've got this now, I'm in the kingdom of heaven, everything's wonderful, it's brilliant for me, nothing else matters. It came from God, and it will return to God, as all the stuff of heaven and earth eventually will. And we can choose to create an environment where we allow the deposit of God within us to grow and develop until it works its way through the whole of our lives and touches everything we think, say and do. Or we can bury it and for fear of either not being good enough or just a wrong fear of the Lord, actually produce nothing. Me, I want to let it grow until it fills every part of me and I want it to be my defining way of being so I don't have to strive to work hard to please my Lord but the hard work and sleepless nights as Paul puts it come about because of a joyful overflow of watching the kingdom of God grow in and through me and that's what I really hope we will do at some point I'm going to do part two of this one Because that's great and it doesn't help us with what we do with the gifts and English talents that God has given us. But I think this is key and I think that's all God wanted to say tonight, really. God is at work in each one of us. He's planted a faith seed in us and he wants that faith in him and trust in him to pervade every fibre of our being and everything that we do, every relationship that we have, every conversation that we have and every job that we do it's about eternal life outworking in us and we could go on to spend another sermon talking about the way that that must affect the way that we use our gifts and our abilities it must but if we think this is about if we start with the gifts and abilities that we've got and try and put our hard work onto it it will never build the kingdom of God effectively because it's not the stuff of heaven that we're working with it's our own human efforts and it'll only ever achieve what its human potential will allow when God builds his kingdom it's why he will build his church yeah it'll last forever when we try and build something that only God can build It's always going to fall down. Let's pray. Lord, take the rubbish out of that, please. And leave in our hearts the truth that you want to sit there. Thank you, Lord God, that you have placed inside of us something of eternal value and consequence. Inside of each of us, Lord, is the spirit who guarantees our our inheritance, the deposit who's in us and working through us, who's nurturing that seed of faith 
and growing and developing it. Lord, we acknowledge that the faith that we have is a gift from you. We didn't work it up ourselves, it was received from you. And Lord, our prayer is that you might find our hearts good soil for that faith seed to grow in. Lord, that we might allow it to expand. Lord, so that actually we bring back to you a harvest that's 30, 60, 100 fold what was planted in us. Lord, help us to learn how to outwork this. How to learn to use everything that you've given us without striving and building in our own strength. And how to develop what we have according to your plans and purposes without it building us up instead of building your kingdom. So Lord, as we earnestly seek you for how you want to work, open our ears and our eyes to all it is that you want to do. In Jesus' name. Amen.